Thank you very much, Sheelan, and it's an absolute um, pleasure to have a chance to, to say a few words. So it's a, it's a real pleasure um, to be here this evening, and I'm afraid there'll be no escaping Brexit because I think it's, it's the, the topic in town, and it is the topic that obviously uh, will uh, lead to, to many, many challenges in the time ahead, but also some opportunities. So I want to um, address um, some of that in, in my remarks this evening. Can I thank um, Richard just for the invitation and for Luke for all the arrangements just for um, having me. You've been very kind and, and very accommodating in what has been a, a very, very busy week. So um, before um, I get into my main remarks and, and the topic that I want to um, talk about this evening, the future of the Union after Brexit, I wanted just to put on record and to acknowledge that over the past 20 years, since 1998, um, I think we have seen very strong Irish, Welsh, relations and we've entered into a whole new and entirely positive um, era. The advent of devolution, the emergence of the Welsh National Assembly has provided a focal point for political relations. And since then, you know, many examples can be quoted of ministers and politicians from Ireland, North and South, and their Welsh counterparts with whom we all work um, through the British Irish Parliamentary Association, ministerial level meetings, the British Irish Council, and there's been many friendships um, fostered throughout all of that time and, and many strong partnerships have been built. And then obviously beyond politics, there's also the, the fact that our two Celtic nations share that strong bond, both historic culture, heritage, tradition, and I know that we all cherish and, and value those things very much. So I think that um, in the context of what I want to talk about tonight, these relations I feel now in the period that we're in more than ever need to be prioritised, they need to be safeguarded and they need to be nurtured as we face the present realities and the challenges that come with Brexit. So if I start that um, during the course of this decade from 2012 to 2022, we are marking a number of, of centenaries of key seminal events and which have helped to shape modern Irish history over the past century and also have defined our relationship with Britain. It's a relationship that's been um, characterised by colonialism, rebellion, partition and political division. So I want to put that in some context. Whilst the devolution settlement ushered in by New Labour in 1998 was a Welsh, Scottish and Irish phenomenon, how we reached this point in Belfast was very different and was painstakingly um, historical. Because it was, in fact, the culmination of a peace process where after decades of political conflict, the IRA announced ceasefires that enabled all party talks to begin. This included the British and Irish governments with key critical support from both the Clinton administration and from the EU. And this eventually led to a new political, constitutional and institutional context and framework being negotiated, which is now known as the Good Friday Peace Agreement of 1998. The only party not to support that agreement um, at the time and who actively campaigned against it was the DUP. This agreement provided an alternative to conflict and was the whole basis in which we were to build a new democratic society and the peace and reconciliation of a deeply divided society. The declaration by the parties at the start of that agreement says, we are committed to partnership, equality and mutual respect as the basis of these relations, relationships within Northern Ireland, between North and South and between these islands. The agreement itself was endorsed by an overwhelming majority of citizens across the island of Ireland in a referenda that was held North and South. 
The agreement enshrines the principle of consent, which affirms the legitimacy of the aspiration to a united Ireland, whilst recognising the status quo to remain part of the United Kingdom. It states that it is for the people of Ireland alone, by agreement between the two parts respectively, and without external impediment, to exercise their right to self-determination on the basis of consent, freely and concurrently given, north and south, to bring about a united Ireland, accepting that this right must be achieved and exercised with uh, and subject to the agreement and consent of the majority of people of Northern Ireland. The agreement allows citizens born in the North to be British, to be Irish, to be both, or to be neither. And the agreement is made up itself of three strands, together representing the relationships that exist within and between the islands of Britain and Ireland. Strand one provides for the Assembly and Executive at Stormont, where elected polit political parties could share power. Strand two provides for an all-Ireland North-South Ministerial Council and seven cross-border bodies. All ministers in the North and all ministers in the Irish Government meet in plenary and sectoral formats to develop cooperation between both parts of Ireland. And these institutions themselves, the very core of them, was predicated on both the British and Irish governments being members of the EU. And then Strand 3 provides for the British-Irish Council to promote relationships between Ireland and Britain and includes the governments of Wales, Scotland, Guernsey, uh, Jersey, Isle of Man and the North of Ireland and both the British and Irish governments. Prior to the signing of the 1998 agreement, security checkpoints existed on the border between the North and South of Ireland. British Army military installations, which had been built and reinforced from the 1970s onwards, were a huge symbol of division and of conflict. The common travel area, full EU membership, and the peace process combined have meant that for the past 20 years, both customs posts and immigration checkpoints on the Irish border have become unnecessary. And people's lives, those people that live in those border communities, have been transformed beyond recognition. And the invisible border on the island of Ireland has become one of those greatest symbols of our peace process. So any reversal will have huge adverse economic, social and political security impacts on both people in those border communities but on the island of Ireland as a whole. This was recognised by all of the parties across the political divide on the back of the referendum in 2016. Even the DUP, despite their current position and their dangerous alliance with the Tories recognised that this was uh, one of the key issues that needed to be prevented. And the irony is that despite that and the position of the DUP, that its leader then, Arlene Foster and Martin McGuinness, wrote to Theresa May on the 10th of August 2016. And it was some, just a short um, excerpt from their, from their letter. They said, firstly, and most obviously, this region is unique. That's a given in that it is the only part of the UK which has a land border with, uh, with the, an EU member state. There have been difficult issues relating to the border throughout our history and our peace process. We therefore appreciate your stated determination that the border will not become an impediment to the movement of people, goods and services. It is equally important that the border does not create an incentive for those who wish to undermine the peace process and or the political sentiment. So that was the message that came from both Sinn Féin and the DUP to the British government, a message which we uh, now know has uh, been blatantly ignored. I think that uh, it's clear to everyone that when Brexit was being conceived by the Tories, 
Ireland wasn't considered. Ireland's position was not considered. The implications of dragging the North out of the EU whilst the South remains did not feature at all in the 2016 debate. And now the consequences have become crystal clear. The return of a hard border in Ireland has become the main obstacle to the deal that is currently on the table. Tory Brexiteers, the DUP, the official opposition at Westminster are all opposing that which avoids a hard border, that is the backstop. The backstop for us is an insurance policy. It's a, it's a bottom line, it's a floor, it's something on which to build. And it's also a recognition of our special and unique circumstances. From my perspective, I would describe the backstop as a, an Irish solution to an English problem. <laughs> so, no, we don't want Brexit. Nobody voted for Brexit. Um, there's no good to come from Brexit. And make no mistake about it, I mean, we're certainly living through what is probably the biggest period of fundamental change since 1998. More than 30 million people voted um, and 51.9% voted leave. And I absolutely fully respect the right of the British people to leave the EU, including I know that you had your, your own um, result here in Wales where 52.5% voted um, to leave. I respect all of that. But we in the North voted on a cross-community basis um, to remain. 56% voted to remain. And whilst the DUP have a short-lived relationship with the Tories, um, they're living in a fool's paradise. And they're lording around that they claim to speak for the people of the North. They do not speak for the people of the North. The four pro-Remain parties, ourselves, the SDLP, the Alliance and the Greens, represent, um, we have different, obviously different politics, different views on many, many things. But on this issue and in this period, we have come together collectively and we collectively believe there is no good in Brexit. There is no such thing as a good Brexit and our preference is for no Brexit at all. We recognise that the majority of people, businesses and civic society do not want Brexit either. We have a shared responsibility to protect jobs, economic stability and people's livelihoods. At the very least, this, avoids, this means avoiding a hard border. It means protecting the Good Friday Agreement and the hard-won peace of the last 20 years. And it also means staying within the single market and the customs union. Therefore, as a basis for this, we maintain that there is a necessity for the backstop as set out in the withdrawal agreement to be banked. We support the backstop contained within the withdrawal agreement because it gives us that legal guarantee. It gives us that insurance policy unless and until a subsequent agreement is in place in regards to the future relationship and the agreement that kicks in in 2020. So let me be clear about the withdrawal agreement and its impact on Ireland. It's by no means any more than a moderate or maybe even a primitive deal. It is what I've described as the least worst outcome. By contrast, we believe that a no deal situation would obviously be catastrophic for our economy and our society. It would mean us crashing out of the EU on the 29th of March with no terms of departure and literally over a cliff edge with supply shortages and many businesses unable to trade, resulting in job losses and a serious economic downturn. We become a third country with practically no access to the EU single market, a physical hard border or an EU frontier being put in place in Ireland, World Trade Organisational rules um, being applied. And all of that presents a serious, huge challenge and a threat to businesses, to households, and it creates an uncertain future for everyone. 
The underlying strength of even your own uh, Welsh economy will be tested to the limits, as will ours. Um, we face the inevitable chaos and no deal would force upon us. I firmly believe that we need to develop, we need to nurture and build and grow an all-Ireland economy where, where we develop closer regimes and models of integration. And in light of Brexit, it's imperative that the island of Ireland redoubles our efforts to develop and rebuild a modern, competitive and sustainable economy where we open doors to trade, investment, tourism and to jobs, but also develop and invest in our Indigenous industries. We need to improve our competitiveness through investing in our public services and infrastructure on an all-island basis. So now the, they say a week is a long time of politics and it is only Monday. Um, and I think that even as uh, when I was preparing my notes for what I would say tonight, you have to keep a, a keen ear to what's going on. So obviously things have unfolded today and the withdrawal agreement is not going to be put to a vote. But I think all eyes are still fixed on Westminster and as we see this unfolding circumstance or debacle as I like to call it. Um, but where matters go from here, none of us have a crystal ball. But there, I suppose there are a number of um, scenarios that, that can unfold. Westminster votes down the withdrawal agreement. Theresa May withdraws it, attempts to reopen a negotiation. But the EU have been very clear that there will be no re renegotiating of the withdrawal agreement. Um, she seeks to extend Article 50. The Tory MPs or the Labour MPs trigger a vote of no confidence. And they have a leadership contest. There's a snap election, second referendum. The DUP collapses supply and confidence deal. The list goes on of all the different scenarios that may unfold. But none of these, uh, none of the above, and if we face, uh, none of these, I think, offer anything of benefit or merit to the people of the North. I think they offer us nothing, only uncertainty, chaos, and what is becoming an even more deepening crisis, if you even um, can say that now. So I have been engaging with um, Theresa May um, on many occasions since she took office. Um, we've made her voice heard in terms of Brexit. And we've also met with um, Michelle Barnier, the EU chief negotiator. And I've done that alongside the other four pro-Remain party leaders in the North. And to make it clear at that point that we speak for the majority of citizens and for businesses and that the DUP do not. We've lobbied all the member states, the EU27, for two years. On Friday past, we met the ambassadors of the, all the ambassadors of the EU28 to Ireland, um, including British diplomats. And what we've said to them all is a very simple and clear message, is that Brexit and the Good Friday Agreement are mutually incompatible. And that a referendum on United Ireland is the obvious option to be on the table at this time. We've told uh, Theresa May that the constitutional question must be put to people by way of a unity referendum that's set out in the Good Friday Agreement if the onset of her Brexit disrupts the finely balanced arrangements that have been agreed back in 1998. There's certainly a growing sense uh, that circumstances are now rapidly changing, which will inevitably lead to the final breakup of the constitutional structures of the United Kingdom, which Theresa May and the DUP say they're committed to preserving. People from across society in the North, including those people who have a British identity, are now seriously questioning what will be the merits and the benefits of staying within the Union after Brexit. Recent polling data tells us that almost half of the voters in the North would support a United Ireland if Britain leaves the EU under the current withdrawal agreement. It also tells us that one in four Unionists think that the DUP would be wrong to reject Theresa May's deal. We, we uh, 
since the Brexit referendum, there has been vast numbers of people who have applied for Irish passports as a practical example of how people will move to rightly look after their own economic self-interests and those of their families. So the Good Friday Agreement provides a peaceful, pa peaceful pathway, a democratic pathway to Irish unity. And because of Brexit, the whole issue of Irish unity has taken on a whole new dynamic. The demographics are also changing, and so too is the political landscape, and that cannot be ignored. And even uh, a former leader of the DUP, Peter Robinson, in a, in a lecture in Queen's University back in the summer, even acknowledged that that was so, and that they needed to be uh, preparing for the change that's coming. For me, the Good Friday Agreement um, gives people the opportunity and the choice to decide our future together, how we live together, how we work together, and how we share our island together. And political momentum on change is certainly moving in that direction. Sinn Féin wants a new Ireland, we want a fairer Ireland, and we want a united Ireland. But we're also very conscious of the fact that we don't own the debate. There are many, many people from a unionist community who look at Brexit with the same fear, the same trepidation as nationalists and republicans, and I know that because I'm engaging with them. And I think the key point in the whole Brexit debate is that the EU have said, they have declared that in the future, in the event of Irish reunification, the North will automatically rejoin the EU. So I think it's fair to say that people, um, those of a British and or a unionist identity are starting to assess all of that. That's not to say that they've give up their, they are not British or they've given up their allegiances, but I do believe they're being challenged to rethink their economic future. Be in no doubt that a unity referendum is coming um, and we're preparing for it. I see no contradiction whatsoever in declaring and delivering on our firm commitment to power sharing with, with unionism in the Stormont Assembly. And I hope that we can get into talks at some stage to find a way back there very, very soon. But I see no contradiction in sharing power with unionism while also initiating and being involved in a mature, inclusive debate about new political arrangements which better serve all of us who share the island. Similarly, I don't believe there's any contradiction in unionism working the existing constitutional arrangements whilst taking its rightful place in the conversation about what a new Ireland would look like. I think it's time for us to hear all voices in this debate. As an Irish Republican leader, part of my task is to give leadership, it's to win elections, it's to increase political strength, it's to realise our ambition of being in government, north and south, to win progressive political victories every single day, and ultimately it is to win Irish unity. But I must persuade our neighbours of the benefits, the rights and entitlements that they could enjoy, and far from me being prescriptive about what they can or cannot have, I want to shape build and share power, not only at Stormont, but on an all-island basis alongside others in their own, and be there in their own right. This uh, Conservative government and the DUP have weakened the Union, and they are the Union's greatest threat. This unprecedented folly has created the biggest constitutional crisis in a century. It has exposed the undemocratic nature and the failure of partition in Ireland, which created an artificial future which has and will remain contested. The fulcrum of Brexit, of the Brexit crisis, is the border in Ireland. Brexit, alongside the denial of rights, the failure to embrace the principles of the Good Friday Agreement, 
alongside socially progressive campaigns for, abort for women's abortion rights, the campaign for marriage equality, the campaign for Irish language rights, have all opened up a whole new political space and a new conversation about the future. The DUP are on the wrong side of it all. And these are not traditional orange and green issues. Issues of progressive rights are not for, you know, they're not for one side or the other, they're for all people. These are the spaces between and across traditional constitutional uh, positions. Citizens are looking to the future to see where their best interests are going to be served. But change is in the air. Over the past two elections in the North, the Unionist majority has gone. The notion of a perpetual Unionist majority, the very basis of partition, is gone. It is no longer autonomy through devolution that people are considering, but Irish unity. Not to become Republicans, but to remain Europeans, and the opportunity to stay within the European Union through separation from England. Not only is that possible, but I would say it is hugely probable in the time ahead. At the beginning of um, my comments this evening, I spoke of the fact that during the course of this decade, we're, make, we're marking key seminal events which have helped shape modern Irish history over the past century. As we approach the centenary of the partition of Ireland, let's not refight the old battles of the past. Let's create a new relationship between Britain and the new Ireland and our people. Let's make partition history and let the people decide our future. Thank you very much, uh, Michelle. We've got some time for, for questions. Um, we've got some roving microphones. Um, um, Garen Talman Davis, uh, uh, Wales for Europe. Um, I fully understand the Sinn Féin's historical position about uh, boycotting Westminster. But in the current situation, and given the potential impact on Ireland, North and South, is there any part of you which regrets it at the minute? I knew somebody was going to ask that question. That question. So, <laughs> so, so is anybody else, or do you want to cogitate? Uh, Michelle, do you, want to, do you want to tackle that question first? Yeah. The answer is no. <laughs> Um, it's, it's a principled position, it's 100 years old, uh, we stand firm by that, by that position. Our Irish interests aren't, West, aren't best served in Westminster, never have been, never will be, and I think Brexit is actually testament to that. Uh, we often, it's obviously very topical at the moment just given the numbers game at Westminster, but for anybody to think that Sinn Féin um, MPs get in and you know, take an oath of allegiance to a foreign monarch, which we're not going to do, um, for anybody to think that we would go in and do that, that it wouldn't turn the Tories inside out themselves because they wouldn't want to be voting in the same lobbies as us. But uh, no, the short answer is no, we will not be breaking that, that position. It, it is a position which we're proud of, but also it's a position that we have a mandate for. We go to the people, we tell them we're not going to go into Westminster and the Nationalist electorate have, told their, have turned their back lock, stock and barrel on Westminster and they did that in the last Westminster election. So we'll remain through to that mandate. Thank you. Uh Hello there, uh, Matthew Hexter. Uh, you mentioned that you you're talking cross-community to people who are traditionally unionists, uh, and they are, so you say to somewhat some extent, changing their minds about the whole question of, of Ireland and, and the EU. To what extent do you think that's the case? Do you think there are lots of unionists who have, say, 
say religiously is probably the right word, uh, voted DUP or UUP are now thinking about a united island just to remain part of Europe. Right. Um, Steve Monaghan, I just want to ask you about uh, your former uh, agricultural position and what, what you're hearing about uh, farmers in Northern Ireland and their view about Brexit. Do you want me to go? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so Brexit, there's, there's been an attempt, um, particularly from political unionism, to try and frame Brexit in the context of everything else that's seen in the North, orange and green. And it's not, because it, it's the same jeopardy for everybody, no matter who you are and what background you have. Um, so the reason that, uh, that we've been working very hard with the other pro-Remain parties is to try and put up that you know, progressive front that we stand together, regardless of our political background, and you know, try try to, to, to articulate that, and, and I think that's certainly that's been something that um, society in, in the north of Ireland have been very welcoming of, because it isn't often just the nature of our politics that people actually stand together on those sorts of platforms. But Brexit is too um, too severe, too, too too just unimaginable in terms of the impact. So we, we have been working very hard to, to present that front to say that we represent people on a cross community basis. Um, I think that uh, the polls certainly suggest that um, the DUP are totally out of step with their own electorate. And I think a recent poll last week talked about, I think it was something like 38% of DUP voters um, think that they have the wrong stance on, on Brexit. Um, so I, I'll continue to, to, to uh, engage with people and try to give assurances that I'm certainly not coming at this as a, you know, from a, a green uh, end of the house, that we have to actually say to people, we have to mitigate against the worst impact. We don't want Brexit in the first place. Um, but what's been agreed so far, the backstop, is our only insurance policy in all of this, and it's for all people to protect all um, citizens. I certainly see it as my responsibility as a leader to um, convince people that um, the future that I envisage is not for nationalists and republicans, because that will not work. That's not the Ireland that I, that I want to live and, and be part of. It has to be for all of us together. So we have a big, big job of work to do to heal the wounds of the past, society coming out of conflict, a lot of hurt and pain has been caused right across the board. So we have to heal, that, um, heal those wounds of the past. We have to deal with the past. And, and you know, that's one of the issues that's being blocked in, in Westminster around the, the whole issue of dealing with legacy. But if we don't deal with the past, how are, we, how are we to shape the future and actually help people to move on? So that's something that I see that I, I certainly have a responsibility to, to, to say Yes, I want a united Ireland. I am not prescriptive about, prescriptive about what that looks like. Um, we need to plan it together. And how do we make sure that people with both Irish identity and British identity have their place in that? And not as an add-on, not as a, you know, a token. It has to be real, genuine, meaningful, inclusive. That's a society that I, that I want to, to work towards. But I, I accept I have, a, I have a job of work to do to convince people. And when I, whenever we secure a unity referendum, we want to win it. So that's why we have to um, convince people of the merits and, and, and let them see that, that what we're offering and what we're suggesting is for, is for everybody. That's why also the, the assembly is very important. You know, nobody, no one would have thought that uh, whenever Martin resigned um, two years ago, that two years later we still would be sitting in this position today. And I would say, say for, there's, there's three main reasons why we don't have an assembly and executive today. One is the RHA, so there was a, a financial scandal at the heart of government. And that was the reason why Martin resigned. So it's a public inquiry which has just completed and will report in April. That's the first reason. Secondly, it's because of Brexit. And would it even suit the British government to have a locally elected assembly which would be uh, anti-Brexit? Because the other four pro-Remain pro parties are anti-Brexit. 
And thirdly, it's because of the supply and confidence deal between the Tories and the DUP. So the DUP um, MPs are cock-a-hoop and very happy with their short-lived arrangement in Westminster. However, that's time-limited. It'll, it'll, it'll not last. As soon as they're no longer required, they will be kicked to the curb, as history will tell you. Um, so I think that um, for those reasons, we don't have an assembly and executive. But that assembly and executive is so important to try, because our society is divided, because things are you know, quite sectarian and in, in, in many places. So we have a lot of work to do. So I see the, the assembly as a, a platform in which to convince people, uh, to, to mitigate against the worst impacts of Tory austerity, to um, do our very best by people and public services as, as much as we can. But it also gives me the platform to convince people of, hold on, maybe, maybe Sinn Féin have got something to offer us here in the, in the new um, political dispensation. On farmers, um, we have seen something in the north of Ireland which we have never seen before, where the Ulster Farmers Union are out saying the DUP are on the wrong side of this argument. Never happened before. Business community are out saying the DUP are on the wrong side of the Brexit argument. It's never happened before. So people have found their voice. I think that's a good thing, because I think for society to work, the politics needs the, the voice of civic society. You need the voice of business. You need to hear it all. And these people, quite honestly, to, to frustration, uh, throughout the course of the whole Brexit debate, had been silent. And even whenever we were out in Europe and engaging with Michel Barnier, he couldn't understand that people weren't shouting from the rooftops about how bad this was. So that picture has changed and people have found their voice and the Ulster Farmers Union were, to use a, a local saying for where I'm from, um, they were sold to pup. And the, <laughs> it means basically that they were, they were told that there's you know, nothing to worry about, it'll be grand, there'll be no regulation, no red tape, you'll be able to farm, get your financial support and it'll all be okay. Now they realise that that's not, that's not so. Um, if you're, gonna, you're still going to have to be bound by, by many regulations and all those things. So I think that there's, there's a, been a, a slow realisation, but, but I, I welcome the fact that they're all now out publicly and calling it out for, for what it is. There's not, it's not good. It's not good for farming. It's one of our main industries, agri-food. Agri like there's, there's, there's no good to come from it. Our traditional trade patterns across the island, all those things are going to be um, massively disrupted. So. Um, as I say, I welcome the fact that the farmers are out on that. Thank you. I saw a hand up in the back, and then there's a hand closer, so closer to home. So in the back first, please. Yoan Bellin, Mr. Govin, Bechi Medal, Bechi Gweld, and Gentav. Iwerdoni Nedig, Ni Kamriani Benal. So what will we see first? <laughs> a united island or an independent Wales? <laughs> I think that's a hospital pass in the world, in, is what we say around here. Uh, uh, and uh, just here in the front here, Dichwell. Uh, I'm one of those um, strange people who uh, takes advantage of the uh, Good Friday arrangements to be British and Irish, uh, both. My, my own minor civil act of disobedience is that I uh, enter both EU and uh, UK several times a year, but I never leave either. Uh, I want to pose a sort of contrarian question, uh, really to suggest that both the DUP and Sinn Féin may have backed the wrong horse. The DUP obviously shooting themselves in the foot every day of the week. And it seems to me that the unionist position is most strengthened by the softest of soft Brexits. And as you say, there are many people in the unionist community that recognise and acknowledge that, and that's why there's a majority as there is. But it also seems to me that for Sinn Féin, that if your objective is 
a united Ireland, the breakup of the United Kingdom. The most surefire way of achieving that objective is to back the hardest of hard Brexits. Because what, what, what we're clearly seeing is that a significant part of what used to be the Conservative and Unionist Party has become the English Nationalist Radical Party. And there are a significant number of those people that if the Irish backstop is a problem to them achieving the sort of Brexit that they want, they would be very happy to expel Northern Ireland, and they would do so at the drop of a hat. The number of conservative, nominally conservative MPs who are now in that position seems to me to be very significant. And the logical position would be, if you're a believer in the breakup of the United Kingdom, is to ally yourselves with the English nationalists. Okay. <laughs> can, I, can I throw in a, a, a third question? Um, you mentioned your desire to see the executive and the assembly back up and running. But you also mentioned the RHI uh, public inquiry. And without prejudging what that decides, it's shone a fairly dismal light on the governance of Northern Ireland. So my question would be, I, I understand why, you, why you'd want to see the assembly and executive return, but do you think there needs to be a fundamental overhaul? And if so, given that these were so it was such a delicate negotiation to get to the current dispensation. Do you think it's actually credible to have a renegotiation of some kind on these structures? Because the RHI um, inquiry does seem to suggest some fairly fundamental problems with the governance of Northern Ireland. I'll take your question first, it's the easiest. <laughs> um, I think that uh, very clearly the RHI inquiry um, has, has highlighted and brought a, a spotlight onto governance issues within both the DUP as a party and just how the whole executive worked, but also, uh, and just to put it on record, some of the behaviour uh, and antics of DUP ministers and spads is not something that I recognise. It's not something that I recognise. It's not certainly how we conduct ourselves in government. But what the inquiry has shown, has shown and, and you know, we look forward to the report, which will hopefully be at the end of March or April, is that there is a need for radical reform. It can't be uh, tinkering around the edges. It can't be, you know, let's fix the ministerial code. It has to be, in my opinion, legislative change. And I think that we need to look towards um, other institutions and just how that's done. And certainly for, for ourselves, getting ready for um, a future negotiation because all roads will lead back the talks. I mean, there's no, there's no other show in town. The Good Friday Agreement and those institutions are what, what we need to get back to. Um, so as part of any negotiation, uh, I think it's, it's just taken as a given, and I know certainly the other parties are, are up for that. It's, I think we have a need for both um, governance change, but also I think even the, around the role of the civil service and what's done there and how, how they conduct their business. So we have, we have work to do, but I think that even in advance of the inquiry reporting, we certainly have our own ideas about you know, how we need to, to fix things, and that's a, an ongoing conversation since the, the whole RHA um, piece. Um, on the issue of, um, you know, do, for example, do we want a, a hard Brexit and does that suit our agenda better? I don't think it does. I don't think that uh, if I'm trying to sell the merits of a, a positive future, a new future, a new Ireland, running the economy of the north into the ground isn't going to, isn't the way to do it. I think we need to build from a positive um, space. I also think that um, 
even some members in our own party would have, would have thought whenever Brexit initially happened that the automatic instinct is that's our unity referendum, just go for it. But that's not responsible. You have to bring people with you. We signed up to the Good Friday Agreement. We believe in the principle of consent. We believe that people will decide the future. So if you work on that basis, then we don't want it to be uh, something that's foisted upon people and that they're forced to make a decision. Because that in itself nearly can have an instinctive reaction to say, no, I don't want it. So I think in order for us to have that responsible and mature and inclusive debate, then that's why I don't favour the you know a crash out or, or a hard Brexit. Although I understand where you're coming from, because that's something that's frequently said. I, I, I've had that raised with me on, on numerous occasions. Um, on the issue of uh, will we have a united Ireland or an independent Wales first, maybe we'll get it all together at the same time. That's very <laughs> diplomatic. You'll go a long way. Um, uh, um, uh, I can just say on the time frame for ourselves for a unity referendum, even before um, Brexit, we had said that we wanted to have a unity referendum um, before the end of the mandate. So we're, we're two years into, or maybe is it three years into, into that, so um, we certainly think it's, it's in the immediate future. Uh, we were ready in that space even before Brexit, but obviously Brexit has now been a catalyst for it. I have a great affinity with Ireland, both north and south. My ancestors came from Tipperary at the time of the famine, and I can also claim Kennedy ancestry from the south. My husband's family, on the other hand, came from Belfast, so we've visited a lot of the time to both. And it breaks my heart to think of a hard border separate in the two parts of Northern Ireland and the South. I think it's awful. I can't imagine anything worse. I do think a united Ireland is closer for you than it ever has been. And I'd like to say, Chucky or la. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm talking about the famine and my ancestors coming over at the time of the famine. I was disgusted to hear Pretty Patel's comments this week where she's on about it's almost like blackmail in Ireland with the thought of having no food. Because the famine that was before was a misnomer anyway. It wasn't a famine at all. And to think that they're even talking about something similar again, I think it's, you know, it's beyond. And I am sorry that my country voted to stay, uh, sorry, to leave the EU, because I think we should have voted with you. And I think Wales and Ireland should unite at this time, because I think independence for the two countries I think is the best solution at the moment, and I think we should have closer ties. Yeah, Ian Titherington. Um, there was a programme recently on television with Ryan Disco called Shoulder to Shoulder, which is a programme about the Irish rugby team and how the North and the South united in sport, and they didn't look at a difference. It was a fascinating programme. Um, what I'd like to know from Michelle is, what other areas do you think Ireland in the future, currently and in the future, can share and unite in a way that uh, Rugby Union has done? Hi, Thomas Leakey from Cardiff University. Um, I wonder if you could talk about the role of the Irish government during the peace process and also the Brexit negotiations, um, how you saw you found their role in that process. Very different questions. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to you in a moment. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, just to this lady, thank you for your, your comments and your support. And I can um, certainly agree with you in terms of the catastrophic implications of a hard border. I mean, that is our biggest symbol of our peace, the fact that that's all being dismantled. And remember, and we don't wish, we don't ever over-egg this um, for fear of it becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy, but the, um, there, is, there are still anti-peace process elements at play in society. And any erection of a border, um, any kind of military installation, because if you erect a border, you have to place a border. And that in itself can become a target. And I think we just need to be very, very, very cautious, knowing our history, that that, that is a 
a danger. However, we don't talk it up too much because we are very conscious of that. But the Taoiseach himself actually brought a newspaper article, I think, into one of the EU Council meetings where he was trying to highlight that, that was, this is a real danger, this is a, something that, that could happen. I totally agree with you on um, Pretty Patel's comments, just absolutely typical of um, how the Tories think of Ireland in general, but I think pretty, pretty typical and sensitive given the great starvation and, and Britain's role in, in, the, in the famine. So I think that our, our comments were so unbefitting anybody that holds public office. Um, I think there are lots of ways that we can um, unite. I mean, I think the rugby team are actually are a really brilliant example of how, you know, how they've been able to do that. Because whenever it comes to you know, a, a young fella playing soccer, for example, and any other sport, you know, it all comes down to will they wear the poppy, will they not wear the poppy? It comes down to all these things. And people are forced nearly in to take a, a corner. And that's not the way to build a, a good society or an inclusive society. So I think that uh, the sport in, in the area of sport, that's a, a brilliant example of actually how people can unite. They did it in South Africa and they can do it here also. So I just think I do it in Ireland also um, around that. But I think we'll have to get into the space of having the real, genuine conversation about what does the future look like and how can we plan it together. So that's why um, we're always very conscious to say that we're not trying to foist our notion of United Ireland onto anybody. Um, we'll have to plan it together for it to be successful. So um, I would love us to get into the space where we start to have the conversations about the other things that we can unite around. But I think we'll probably not genuinely get into it in a big way until perhaps the, the date set for the UNDI referendum because there's nothing that will focus minds as much as, as that. So you'll start then to have those debates about all those things. You know, people are very passionate and emotionally attached to, you know, flags, emblems, symbols, you know, all those things. And, but we're going to have to have those, you know, very mature conversations and, and to do it in a, in a very inclusive way. On the role of the, um, the Irish government, I think that uh, we, we've, you know, we're um, in opposition to them in, 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 in the South, but we've played a very constructive role with them in their whole approach to, to um, the Brexit negotiations. And to be fair to them, they have held firm on the, on the issue of the backstop, that that has to be maintained. And even the Taoiseach's out this evening saying, once again, there's going to be no renegotiation of, of the withdrawal agreement. The backstop is there. It remains the bottom line in the insurance policy. So we've had a fairly constructive um, uh, relationship with them throughout this whole Brexit debate. And, and lent ourselves to try and be very helpful and you know, not uh, the normal sort of cut and thrust of politics and opposition and, and how you would conduct yourself. So I think they've played a, a fairly constructive role in all of that. And we look to them very much in this whole um, debate to stand up for, the, for national interests. Because the Taoiseach himself, I think maybe it was two years ago or maybe it was last year, he said um, the Titanic plates are shifting. There is a whole new political dispensation at play now that is just, it's just never been seen before. The things that, uh, the, the, the fact that um, civic nationalism is now awake because of Brexit. Uh, civic nationalism are now looking to the Taoiseach. Like, so in a, a number of weeks ago, um, a thousand people from all different walks of life came together and signed an open um, letter to the Taoiseach. And they're engaging with the Taoiseach because he said last year that people in the north would never be left behind again. So we're going to hold them to account for that. You can't just make that statement and then not see it through. So I think that uh, the politics is just beyond recognition right now. Um, despite all the challenges of Brexit and everything else that's happening, from an Irish nationalist point of view, the, 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 the politics at home is so, so um, changed where we're seeing things that just have never happened before. 
the unionist majority is gone, demographics are changing, the DUP fa failure to embrace genuine partnership working and equality and party of esteem, um, all these things, the Brexit piece, the, 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 all them all together make a picture now where people are saying, right, we are want to assert ourselves, we'll have our voice heard, and I think people are genuinely up for a whole new political dispensation, and I um, want that to be, obviously, a united Ireland for, for us all. Thank you. I think I'm going to take a, a last round. So we've got over here. Hello, Michelle. Uh, I'm Morgan Bowler-Brown, and uh, I just want to ask a question that wasn't around Brexit. I thought I'd be the first, but some people got before me. So um, last Easter, I was in Belfast for the celebrations over Easter, and um, we all know Belfast is a, a politically charged city, and, and that was probably the most politically charged time of the year for, for the calendar. And um, what I noticed was the amount of young people that were engaged in, in the events and what was going on, and they all seemed to be very politically aware. So before I ask my question, I wanted to observe that we have had recent really successful youth parliament elections, and that's gone really well. But what advice could you give to the Senate and the Welsh Government uh, to engage young people more? To, to get a, a better response from young people in politics. Thank you. Um, Sean, over here. Oh, hi. Um, more of a long-term question, really. Um, I was just wondering if, uh, say, the, the UNIREF happens and United Island happens, would you still like to see some sort of devolved uh, assembly in the north? Uh, and if not, if it's just a one parliament in Dublin, do you see Sinn Féin as a serious contender for government in Dublin? Uh, I'll ask in Welsh. Do you put until in credit of the Petrovides and Lina dead via Swizelek and all credit worth it on? My role, the ice sack and the desultip and Humbry and secure and gumless should the King Weld role of the ice with Elek, Monk and the desultip with Elek have been in. Okay. One here. Thank you. Um, <coughs> My, my I've got two questions. One of them is uh, <laughs> <laughs> one, one of them is about the common travel area, and um, I don't know if you've seen a report which was done by some legal academics at universities here in Britain. One of them being the University of Durham. I forget the others for the Equality Commission in the North and the South that says that the common travel area is almost entirely not underpinned by any statute. So it's a convention and could easily fall away. And it could be very important, you know, Brexit brings it to mind. Now, if Brexit and there was no deal, the common travel area would be all there'd be in, in many senses. And, and yet it has, it has quite flaky substance. Um, and whether you think that needs to be firmed up in all events, and including in a future if, if there was to be a United Ireland, because that might be very important. It'd be important to people here to be able to go to Ireland, but it would also be important for people in Ireland, including those with the British identity, to be able to come easily to this island. Mm. And the second question is about, it partly overlaps, it's about health services. Um, because uh, just a, obviously the, the cross-border health services are entirely underpinned at the moment by the common European Union frameworks. But even beyond, so that's one issue, but even beyond that, uh, uh, one of the factors I imagine in Northern Ireland uh, which is popular about it being in Britain is the National Health Service and whether you would, uh, whether you are thinking about the future of health services uh, across the island of Ireland if you are to persuade people in the north to vote for unity. So. 
Okay. Thank you. Do you yeah, I think we can go now, yes. <laughs> um, well, I think it's brilliant to see the Youth Parliament. I was over in the Parliament and I saw some of the signs up for it, so I think that's a powerful uh, thing because we have to... I, I genuinely believe that, uh, you know, we have to sh change the shape of politics and the makeup of politics and politicians. Um, certainly there's a change in picture. We have more um, young people coming into politics, more women coming into politics, um, but we still have an awful lot more, lot more to do. We need more people from an ethnic background. We need, we need to be more diverse. We need to represent the society in which we're, we're governing. So I think that uh, youth parliaments are a brilliant way of actually bringing people in. One of our experiences with youth parliament in, in the north is that young people come in and then they just sit in the the Shinners sit here and the, the unionists sit here and the SDLP sit here and everybody comes in nearly with the uh, with their own party line, uh, which which in one sense is fair enough because that's your politics. But you want people to come in with an open mind and actually be open to debate. And I find I find that um, some of the best uh, conversations I have are with whenever you go in to take questions with young people, because I love the fact that uh, there's no uh, like not no filter but you know it's the freedom to be able to ask anything you want so it's probably one of the most challenging audiences you ever have to, have to engage with but i think it's 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 brilliant um i don't know if any of you know this, this tv show in the north called the nolan show um it's got its own challenges but um it's, it's it's a strange program but he does this thing called the top table where young people actually interview the politicians so they asked would i sit down and do an interview with with a young fella a few weeks ago and I did it, and he, he probably he probably was one of the most challenging interviews, you know. But it was powerful for him to be involved and for him to have actually have the opportunity to question a political leader. And I just, for me, that's what we should be doing a lot more of, allowing people that and uh, giving people that platform. Um, and he was he was certainly challenging in, in all of his questions. So I think that things like, and I know your your own parliament are looking at this, you know, votes for um, sixteen year olds, lowering the voting age. Um, we're going to have a referendum in the south of Ireland on that. Um, next May, and the party's been very active in campaigning for that, and we passionately support it. Unfortunately, what we'll have if, the, if it's successful in the South, and I hope that it is, um, the North, the, the young people in the North then will be left both having their rights denied and then also not even having the opportunity to, to vote to do something about it until they're 18. So um, I think we just need to do more to continually um, um, bring young people in, into, uh, into politics and be engaging in politics and actually understand the significance of it for them. But I certainly find that over the course of the last two years, because our politics has changed, so many young people, particularly in the question about the Irish Language Act, so many young people, particularly Irish language speakers, can't understand, who maybe didn't, not, not didn't understand, but maybe just weren't in tune with what was going on politically, are now politicised because of the, the antics towards the Irish language and the disrespect and disregard for the Irish language. So there's a whole new wave of young political activists now because of the language issue for them. That's, that's why they've got in, uh, engaged. And on the Irish Language Act, if I can explain to you, it's, not, it's, it's, it's twofold in, in, in one sense. One, it provides legislative guarantees. That means that you can't be discriminated against. It's protection against some of the antics of, of previous um, DUP ministers. So it's about providing your rights in law and enshrining it and making sure that it happens and, you can't, and there's no barrier to it. But secondly, it's about, it's actually the barometer of mutual respect for Irish nationalists. It's about, you know, at the heart of the Good Friday Agreement, the principle of it is mutual respect, genuine um, equality for all citizens. And it's now become nearly the litmus test for, you know, the Good Friday Agreement institutions. And that's why it's so hugely important. You know, it wasn't ever about trying to force people to learn the Irish language and all the scaremongering that went alongside it. Um, it was just about making sure that people with that Irish national identity had, had the respect which they 
deserves. That's why it's so important and it's a crucial issue which needs to be delivered on. And we certainly will not uh, be giving up on that. That is one of the one of the key issues at the heart of the of the political impasse alongside all the other things that I've previously talked about. Um, do I see a role for the devolved assembly in the event of United Ireland? Yes, I think we should be open to that. Um, I think that, as I said, we're not prescriptive about it, but certainly, you know, could you have four provincial assemblies? Could you have that type of approach? So I think we have to be open to, to all of that. How do you make sure the people with a British identity, particularly in the North, given our, our, our background, how do you protect that in, in, all, in all of its parts in a, in a new political dispensation? So um, we certainly are, are um, up for that. And on your question about um, do we see ourselves in government in the South? We absolutely see ourselves in government in the South. That's part of the strategy, part of the plan. We want to be in government North and South. We want to be able to influence change. I believe that the, um, we'll, we'll get our unity referendum whenever an Irish government asks for it. So I think it's important. That's why we need to build our political strength and why we need to, um, to be in government in, in, in the South. And on the issue of the, um, you know, the, the common travel area and uh, as I said in my remarks earlier, you know, it's the, the Good Friday Agreement isn't dependent on you know, the, us being in the EU, but it is obviously it underpins it and the common travel area was one of the things that allowed us to have that free movement of, of, of people. And I think that this is why we're, we're, we're very careful to say that the withdrawal agreement as it currently stands is the least worst outcome, but it's not good. It's still not good. There are so many things. It doesn't deal with the issue of citizens' rights. It doesn't deal with you know, access to the European Court of Justice, all the things that we're concerned about. So that's why even if the withdrawal agreement in its current form, with the backstop and all goes through, if that all happened, we still think, or we still know, that citizens in the North are going to be massively, hugely disadvantaged because of what it looks like on the other side, particularly around the whole issue of citizens' rights. Um, so we have a big, big, big piece of work to do there. And on the issue of the health service, we, it's actually probably one of the, the, the most common questions that people ask whenever they're talking about United Ireland. Well, will I have to pay to go to the doctor? Because in the South, you pay to see your GP. In the North, we obviously have the health service. And our, uh, our position on the health service is that we believe in a health service free at the point of delivery for all citizens. It should be based on need. So we believe in a national health service. And you know, we're, we're currently looking at um, trying to provide information out into the public discourse around that. So what does a health service look like in the event of a new Ireland? I think that is one of the, the key questions which we have to address for people. And because there's so many areas of North-South cooperation that already happen, when I was health minister, you know, we, we launched cardi cardiology services for children on all island bases. Um, there's so many services that aren't provided on the island of Ireland, perinatal, women in mental health and pregnancy. There's so many services that aren't currently provided that we could do so much more effectively and serve our people well in a new Ireland. So I think that is one of the big issues which we'll have to tackle in convincing people of a new and prosperous Ireland. Okay. Um... Michelle, thank you so much um, for engaging so fully with a really wide range of questions. I think I'm going to draw things to a, a close now. And I do so by thanking you so much for, for making the time at, at this extraordinary moment in politics. I, mean, I do think that we're very privileged that we've, um, you know, the Irish border is front and centre of the politics of these islands at the moment. And we've been really privileged to have you sharing your perspective and your party's perspective this evening. We're really grateful to you and your staff for juggling the arrangements to make all of this possible. I'd also like to thank Luke Nicholas, 
who seems to have been glued to his phone for the last few days, uh, <laughs> making sure that everything uh, fell into place. I'd also like to thank everybody involved in the Peerhead, in terms of the staff here and in the Llywydd's office, who've been extremely cooperative in terms of helping us put this event on. But I think, above all, I'd also like to thank you for turning out the fact that we've had a, a full hall, that we've had two Welsh party leaders in the audience uh, this evening, or one was here for most of, of, the, of the talk before he had to disappear, shows that there's a huge interest here, not only in what's going on in Ireland, but a huge commitment to actually forging and improving the links across the Celtic Sea. So, Michelle, thank you so much for coming along, uh, and we hope to see you back uh, in Wales very soon.